So where are we going today in Isaiah? I mean, we ended on a really rough verse last week, right? Al left us with 43:28, and then he walked off the stage. It was, it was brutal, brutal, brutal. I don't know how he did that to us. And I shared with my community group about verse 24 last week also, and, and how God is burdened by our sins. And in verse 28, you know, said, you know, Jacob will be delivered to utter destruction. Utter destruction. And then like Al said, he dropped the mic and left. Um, The great thing is, though, that word for destruction does not mean a pure and simple destruction. It means a destruction of the things that are abhorrent to God. Things that God finds disgusting. So last week we saw in this courtroom scene that we went through, it was not a pardon to the enemies of God, but a divine curse. So today we're going to finish off a small section that we've been going over called the Redemption of Israel. And while Al got to be the, the bad cop last week, I get to be the good cop. And we need to remember that Israel is still in Jerusalem at this time, but the eventuality of God's promise to exile them is getting closer to happening. We know it because now we have a conqueror that is named where we hadn't before. Um, We see Babylon is mentioned, and that started in chapter 40, and it's going to go through 48. Verse 2 and 40 shows us that Israel will head to exile because the word it tells us the warfare has ended and the words her iniquity is pardoned expresses the sins have been forgiven because the exile has um, occurred so we're going to look today at the following sections as we make our way through 1 through 23 We're going to see verses 1 through 5 is going to talk about a future blessing. Verses 1 through 5, a future blessing. 6 through 20 is God's promise is certain. God's promise is certain. And then 21 through 23, Israel will be blessed by a redeeming God. Israel will be blessed by a redeeming God. So let's pray. Dear Jesus, we just thank you so much for this time that we get to come before you and really go through your word. We thank you for just the picture we saw by the morning worship about this this deer panting for water is how we need to be longing for you. We thank you for that great song by Fernando Ortega that says, um, all I is all I want is you, Jesus, no matter what, no matter what, even when I know my time is ending and things are getting rough, all I want is you, just give me you. How incredible. We thank you so much for that. We thank you that we can hit restart on days like today, beginning of the week. We can, we can forget last week. And, and focus on meeting you every single day. 
and coming before you and just bringing our, our praises to you, our prayers, and then dive into your word and get to know you better. We love you so much. Just bless this time. Help us to focus on you and, and put the, the cares of the world outside for now. Amen. Okay, let's look at 44, 1 through 23. It says, But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, formed you in the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessings upon your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by a flowing stream. This one, this one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and the name himself by the name, and name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no other God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what is to happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? Are you my wit are, and are you my witnesses? Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, and they shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works with it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and he falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over half of it he eats meat. He roasts it and is fat satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, 
and falls down to worship. He prays to it and says, deliver me. You are my God. They know not, nor they discern, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and I have eaten, and I shall make the rest of it an abomination. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not lie in my right hand? Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you, you are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. So let's go over a future blessing, verses 1 through 5. Verse 1 starts off so much, we see it the same way chapter 43 starts out, right? It says, but now here, and with basically it means, but now then. So after the brutal verse 28, God is using this opening verse to, to tell his people to focus, to listen to him so they do not come to a wrong conclusion by believing that verse 28 was leading to the end of them. He said, But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen, to kind of take that sting away from what they'd heard. God has a message for them if they will listen. And if the term destruction in 28 got their attention, they're going to listen. They will learn there is no need to be afraid. Ultimately, refreshment and not punishment is going to come to them. He starts off by telling, reminding them that, hey, you know what? You are my people and you are a chosen people. So that's the theme we're going through, my people and chosen. God is telling them, you have failed to listen and now punishment is coming. But I want you to understand, you are my people, I love you, and I will redeem you. Sounds a lot like when you were a kid, right? Your parent would say, this is going to hurt you more than it's going to hurt me. It's like, yeah, sure. So God is going to continue in verse 2 by telling them that, I am the God who made you, I formed you in the womb, or like in Psalm 139, 13 through 16 says, I formed, for you I formed the inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth. 
your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book, book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. That could sound weird, right? That we were known long before earth was ever even created. But how incredibly tender that the God of the universe is telling this group, I'm going to punish you. It's coming, but I have a great future for all my people. The people I have known, I have called to be mine before the beginning of the world. You will have a great future. And God reiterates his desire for these people to be comforted because they are going away to a foreign land in chains to be servants. And he tells them in verse 2, and I'm sure they really loved it at the time, fear not. He says to fear not, he says to fear not Jacob my servant and Jeshurun whom I have loved. You're saying, who is Jeshurun? Who is this guy? Well, it's another word for God's people, and the term means upright. We see it used in Deuteronomy. But the UN at the end of it is like an affectionate term. It's like if, you know, someone named you William. As you grew up, they called you Willie, or maybe Tom, Tommy, or Jim, Jimmy, or Riley, uh, Riley. Uh, but now I guess he gets called Daddy. Um, but also, we can't lose sight of the names he uses here. He uses Jacob and Jeshurun. And I told you Jeshurun means upright. So, you know, look what God does here. It's a simple sentence that says, Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. But God is covering here all aspects of his people. And if you look back, Jacob could refer him looking back at his people, at their failures, and to remind them, okay, Jacob, Jacob in his younger days was what? He was a deceiver, right? He deceived his brother Esau. With his mother, he teamed up and deceived his father Isaac. Um, but look at how Jacob turned out. I mean, he was a man greatly loved by God. In fact, he made the top three names, right? If you think about it, when you refer to God, you refer to God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Whoever's going to put this sermon on the podcast is going to love me. Um, and then he shows the name Jeshurun to show us that we will be an upright people full of grace. Then how do we know of all his grace? Well, verse 3 tells us he will pour out rain. It's not sprinkling, it's not misting a little bit, but he's going to pour out rain. Verse, the end of verse 3 says, I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessings on your descendant. They will spring up among the grass like willows by a flowing stream. This tells us that we're all going to be revived and that 
the dry desert part of our lives will be transformed forever by this life-giving grace that comes from the redemption of Christ by being transformed by his Holy Spirit. Verse 5, This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. Another will will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. This is a cool contrast because if we look at 43.26 and we imagine that we're back in a courtroom scene and God says, let's argue together. We don't get the idea that anyone is talking to him. No one's talking to him. No one says, yeah, I want to argue with you, God. Nothing. And verse 5 is a contrast to that. We have people that are calling, saying, and writing their affiliation with God. Belonging to God and in his family is a commitment. The work of the Holy Spirit in their life is evident, evident in the way they live and the way they act. To belong to God will be prized, and his people will love, they will love to state the name they belong to. Now, when I got to the part that said, write his hand uh, for the remind that he belongs to God, I thought of Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. I want to share that with you. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words I, that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So it's showing you keep God ever before you. So verse 5 Verse 5 is a stark contrast to 43.24, right? A stark contrast to 43.24 in that by claiming God, you demonstrate your love for him by what? By knowing his word and obeying him. His word on your heart demonstrates that great love for him that you just can't get enough. You can't get enough and you long for that day. But in 4324, God says, we avoid him. We claim to be his, but there's no evidence in our life. There's no evidence. We don't spend time with him. We avoid it. Things happen. We miss the most precious time that we can have in our day is when we sit with God. And then we keep on sitting him, but tell, oh, we get better. We love God. That's not how it works. So God says, you are burdening me. You are burdening me with your iniquities. Okay, verses 6 through 20. God's promise is certain. God's promise is certain. We went over in chapters 40 through 41 how illogical how illogical it is to engage in anything other 
than the worship of God. Here we're going to look at the message of God on who he is in relation to our sinful desire to control worship. And God says, I go first. I'm going to talk about me. In 6 through 8, it says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, do not be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? Are you, and you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. So before God tells us again how worthless it is, is to engage in idol worship, or in our case today, we could use that as anything that takes us away from God is now we could call idol worship. So God is going to remind us first who he is, who he is. There is nothing worth worshiping but God. And there is nothing, nothing that should steal our attention away from God. We can't let it. Very cool that God says here, I love this part, that he is the king of Israel and his redeemer, the Lord of hosts, there is no one but me. That statement, I don't know about you, but it gives me like this look at the Trinity. God's kind of announcing it right there. And that's, that could be just me. That's pretty cool. And God is also showing us that he is every possible power. He is. He needs no assistance from anything he created. Creation is not involved. Whereas in verses 9 through 20, we're going to be reminded again of just how useless idols are. And I want you to keep one thing in mind as we go through this. As we go through 9 through 20, I want you to consider one thing, uh, the folly of idol worship. And that is, who is con in control of that realm? Is it the idol that's created or the person? And I believe the person is actually not wanting to follow God. And he's decided or she's decided on how they want to spend their time. They don't want to be obedient. They want to make their own decisions and do their own thing. But God makes it real clear at the end of verse 6. He says, I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And while that is a true drop-the-mic moment, God's going to continue into verse 7. And as far as I'm concerned, God could have stopped after verse 2 and 44. That was pretty powerful enough. And with a challenge much like 4326, where God says, let's argue together. Basically, who thinks they're like me, come forth 
and proclaim your case. And in verse 7, no one came forth. And again, God is saying that if you are like me, you can explain in history, you can explain how creation came about. Now think about that, if you can explain that. That intense, intense detail of creating everything. If you can do that, then tell me what the future holds. Pretty big words in a short little span. And God is saying that he's also guided a people's history when he says appointed an ancient people. So if someone claims that they are a God, he wants to hear specific examples of what they've done. And God ends verse 7 by saying, go ahead and tell me what's going to happen going forward. And verse 8 shows us that the argument in verse 7 is to contrast the vast difference of the almighty God versus an arts and crafts project that a human creates. After the intense verse 7, God is basically stating in verse 8, stop trembling and fear not. Have I not told you from old and declared it? Have I not told you from old and declared it? This can be better said, did I not make you hear? Did I not tell you previously? And it's important to understand the you he's using here is a singular word. It's singular. And what it means is he is telling his people as a singular unit all together and what did he tell them? We see in verse 23, 25, God is telling them, although he is punishing them, he is also forgiving them, and he will blot out their transgressions. So what do we get that? So by knowing his word, we are his witnesses, and we can be comforted by the, by the precious assurance by reading, by memorizing his word, and by knowing his divine truth about his plans. And the good thing is, knowing the plans that include us. So God basically ends verse 8 by asking, is there another God besides me? Rock here means refuge, sure footing, and if you read through the Psalms, you get that. Like he takes you out of the miry pit and sets you on a rock. It's a sign of secure footing, security. And God is saying that I am the only rock. I am that only refuge. Moving into verses 9 through 20. We saw in verses 6 through 8. What God just told us about himself, that he is the one and only, and besides himself, there is not another. There is no other God. And now we're going to look at a man that wants to control and will choose to make a God to worship. Whereas God received no reply when he asked if there was anyone like him, we are going to now go 
and look at the arts and crafts made by man with the sole purpose of making it God the way the man wants to see him, wants him to be, and wants to worship him. This passage is just, is not just God taunting all of us who put other things ahead of him, but it's a look at what our need is. Is our need to be in control? And because of that, we give our worship to another, our time to another, our dedication to things other than God. Simply put, are we lacking a proper obedience in our life? To make or buy idols, we may not use the same craftsmen as today. I think the majority of today's heathens use something called apple. Would we all agree? No? Okay. Some Samsung, yes. But today we definitely wouldn't waste our time with little wooden objects, right? Because we have greater options today. We do. Just think of it. I mean, we have things called apps, the internet, social media. We can get lost for hours. If you think about it, if you look at your own life, you can get lost in hours in stuff that's dedicated to ultimately nothing. Our lives can become a show about nothing if we let it. Verse 9. Let's go through it. Verse 9. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may put to shame. So verse 9 says it all. It moves from the makers to the idols. In 9a is the maker, 9b is the idols. And God is telling us, the man who makes this stuff is meaningless. He's doing meaningless work or spending his time in futility. The maker has no sense of meaning or purpose in the world. Here God says, the maker considers, considers these things their little darlings. Idols can cause infatuation, and we see that today in things like horoscopes, marketing of shows, and fantasy characters. And the second part of verse 9, their witnesses neither see nor know that they may put to shame. And this matches later what we see in verses 18 through 20. All this worship is an infatuation in our own mind. May, and it may be put to shame means the same as reaping shame or to be shown as fools in the end. Verses 10 through, 10, 10 through 13, God is pointing out that an idol is made by a mere man. He does this in verses 10 and 11 by pointing out that mere humanity of the, the mere humanity of the craftsman. Verse 12 shows us the fragility of man and in 13, the man-controlled creation 
and the placement of the idol. Verses 10-11. So who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them all stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. So we see in verse 10, the intent of the human maker is to make something to achieve divinity. Verse 11 contrasts verse 8, because in verse 8, we are told, because of God, we should fear not. But in verse 11, God says, hey, bring everyone linked to the idol together. Bring them all together. They are going to be put to shame, and they will reap shame like we talked about in verse 9. God is saying they should all gather together, look at what they've done, and fear, for they have sinned greatly against God. Verse 12 points us out to the mere humanity of the idol maker or the craftsman. God, I believe in his great sense of humor, shows us that the ironsmith makes this idol with his strong hand, but then becomes hungry, and his strength fails, and he feels faint for a lack of drinking water. God is asking us if we really believe that this imperfect maker will somehow make a divine creation worthy of praise like we should be giving God. 12 says an ironsmith takes a cutting tool, works it over the coals, he fashions it with a hammer, and works it with a strong arm. He becomes hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water, and is faint. And then the 13, the carpenter stretches the line, he marks it out with the pencil, he shapes it with planes, he marks it with a compass, he shapes it into a figure of man with the beauty of a man, to dwell in the house. So 12 and 13 shows us that every idol, every idol has a craftsman behind it. 12, we saw an ironsmith, and in 13, we get to take a peek behind the curtain and how these are made. And we see a carpenter that's gonna make an idol. He takes the rough material and he starts measuring it, and what he needs to make the model that is the current bestseller at that time. Then he makes and marks it, starts shaping it, where ultimately it can be hammered to a wall so it will be secure and it can be worshipped. Now we're going to go to verses 14 through 17, and they're going to, 14 and 17, our focus. We left the mere humanity. Now we're going to look at the mere material that is used to craft an idol the mere material. 10 through 13, I said that. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm repeating myself. Um, ba, ba, ba. And in 16 through 17, we use the same imagery to see how this material does minister to us as we gain warmth from it and we use it to cook our meals and then man uses the 
rest. That's going to be key here. What's left over to worship? Verse 14 shows us what today we would call this a sustained forester, right? This guy's in a sustainment. He's keeping everything going. So he's well ahead of his time. 14 says he cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it go strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. So we get the idea this idol maker, I mean this, this person gathering the wood, isn't just stripping a forest, but he's cutting what he needs and replanting new growth, right? And then we may not realize it, but God is showing us here that he's trusting God to nourish this re- replanted material. So God is giving us an impression here of the background of the material that will be used. It could be a cedar, could be an oak, but it's a tree being fully cut down. And like I said, the man's replanting it by planting samplings or seeds, and they are nourished by the, the rain. The man is just doing his job to keep wood going, which was vital to their economy and vital to how they lived. The goal for him was simply to make money. We see no mention of, a, of religion at the beginning of this. There is no idle section of the forest that he's managing, nothing. He's just gathering this raw material to be used for everyday life. Verse 15 says, then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and breaks bread. And then he makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. So we saw in verse 14 all the work it took to make life comfortable, providing a steady supply of wood to people. Now we see wood used here to providing comfort. A man comes in, comes home from work, it's cool, he uses the wood to make a fire and, and, and provide comfort, get his house to a proper temperature. Once he is warmed, now he begins the task of starting a fire in the oven to make his bread, roast his meat, and then once he is satisfied, he's warm, he's full, he takes the remainder of the wood that's left, fashions an idol, and worships it. Don't get lost on that. He took care of himself first, and once he was satisfied, he began to make a God out of the scraps of what was left in worship. 16 and 17 reemphasize this. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a God, his idol, and falls down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. Like I said, these two verses are a continuation of 15, and they emphasize 
the lack of anything special in the creation of this idol. We saw in 14 that there was no special material used to craft it. And in 15, we saw that the person cares for himself first and then grabs the remaining scraps and makes a sidle. 16 points out, again, the realization that over half the wood that he had was burned for warmth. The other half was used to roast his dinner. And God is saying this, so we get the idea that it's intentional and it's repeating verse 15 to underscore the use of this mere material in this scene. 17 doesn't say anything but the remainder. He uses whatever's left. After he's been fully satisfied with heat and food, there's no chosen material. It's, it's just scrap. He pulls it out and asks it to become divine and save him, deliver him from whatever. Verses 18 through 20 says, They know not, nor they discern, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Gee, Half of it I have burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten, and I shall make the rest of it an abomination. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. He cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? So these verses are continuing 14 through 17. God is not letting this go. He wants us to understand, he wants us to really understand here what happens without knowledge and without a proper fear of him. Verse 18, we are, man, we are reminded that the man is operating, he's operating in his own strength, and that's not good. We can look back to earlier verses in Isaiah that we've already gone through to remind us that God's brought this to our attention. So in Isaiah 6-9, Isaiah 6-9, it says, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. And he also told them in Isaiah 29-14, Isaiah 29-14, he said, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Now what we said in 18, for he has shut their eyes, but a better way of saying that is he has plastered their eyes shut. God has warned them, but they keep trusting in their own wisdom or the wisdom of their false leaders or false teachers. So there is no problem in understanding that God has granted them mental blindness and also gave them 
a lack of understanding, or the ability to even apprise what is going on, discerning what's going on in the situation they are. Verse 19 shows us they know not or discern could be stated. They just do not stop and think or really bring this matter into their heart. They don't do it. They fail to give the matter the thought because, again, there is no knowledge, which means they don't even know the facts to consider. There's no discernment. So even if the facts were known, there is no ability for them in their current state to understand the significance of what they're doing. This is the picture of a mind of a fallen man. There's no knowledge, so there's no ability to process thought, and there's no capacity to discern what they've done. The fact that he has burned wood in the fire for warmth, to break bread, to roast meat, had a nice meal, took the remainder scraps of it, and made something that God considers disgusting, and fell down and gave the created thing his worship. Verse 20 says, He feeds on ashes, and a deluded heart misleads him. Feeds on ashes is an old way of saying someone was doing something silly and useless. Verse 20 is telling us that the same wood the idol is made from is now currently mostly ash in the fire. We understand the ash and the, and the idol were made from the same material, so he could have saved a lot of steps here just by praying to the ash. It actually would have took less effort. And he cannot deliver himself. The man is holding the idol, this creation of his, He's holding it in his right hand, but the truth is, God's saying, the idol has a hold of him, and he cannot break free of its grip. It's a lie that leads to destruction. Now, the cool thing about this is the homework I'm going to give you on this section, because if you're doing the McShane, reading through the Bible in a year, you've read this recently. So go back, if you're not, at least go back and read Psalm 115. It's not long, but it is so cool because it talks about this entire section right here of 9 through 20. So cool. So verses 21 through 23. Israel will be blessed by a redeeming God. Israel will be blessed by a redeeming God. In verse 21, God immediately, immediately calls his people to remember. So this connects the last section. While the idolater has been busy fashioning his idol, God's people, we read here, have been fashioned. And this idolater is bound, he is bound to what he has fashioned, but God's people are bound to him, and we are his servant. The idolater prayed for a piece of wood to save him. 
But God is saying to his people, I have redeemed you. The idolater has bowed to a block of wood or a tree stump. Now we're going to see that every tree is summoned to rejoice in the Lord. And we see that in Psalm 96, 11 through 12. It says, let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then all the trees of the forest shall sing for joy. In verse 21, God says, Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten. God is calling his people to remember. God calling his people to remember requires a mind and it requires a memory. They are important in this call. The deliberate recollection of who God is, what he has done, is characteristic of a person of God. Knowing and calling on that knowledge of wisdom is what his people do. And what's cool here is the second use of the word servant in this. It requires more emphasis than the first. The first use of servant, God is telling his people that they have access to the memories of all that God has done. The second use of God's people mentioned as servant provides a similar look at, at the word formed or fashioned in regards to how the idols were. But we are formed or fashioned for the work of God. And we are given assurance in our lives for the future because of this work. And God says at the end of 21, in that we will not be forgotten, whereas Scrappy the woodpile is now burned and gone, is long gone, we are not. And in verse 22 it says, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud, and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Blotted out your transgressions, or another way of saying it, we could say, he swept clean your rebellion, matches 43.25. So basically, since then, we have gone full circle, but this section has a much better ending than what Al left us with in 43.28, much better. Cloud and mist, they're used here because they represent things that are easily obliterated. Return, used here, it's not an invitation, folks. It is a command. It's a command. Verses 22 and 23 give us a picture of God having determined. That's the best part. We're command to return, and he's determined to redeem. 23, sing, O heaven, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains. O forest, every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified. 
in Israel. What a great picture you get from that, right? Everything's everything, singing and praising God. We see throughout the Bible that creation and redemption are the same. God is both creator and redeemer. Creation praises and will praise God for all time. Now think about that. We see this all through the Bible, even to the point when we looked in the New Testament at Palm Sunday, and the Pharisees told Jesus, quiet your disciples, quiet the people, and what did Jesus say? He says, you know what? If I stop them, even the rocks will cry out. Awesome. The Pharisees didn't understand that at all, just like we saw the man didn't understand it in verses 9 through 20. 23 ends telling us that God will display his beauty in all of Israel. Amen. Jesus will have returned, and his bride, us, will meet him. What a great section to think about this as we end here, the thinking about that we are his bride. And if we remember, like in verse 21, we are to look to the knowledge of God he has given us concerning the wonderful future that awaits us. We are to think about this, base our lives on this knowledge, and live, live as it's going to occur soon. How does that translate to us now? If I was in a courtroom, I would say, Judge, I want to have some latitude here. I'm going to go some places you may not understand, but I want you to, to give, me, give me some latitude. So how does this relate to us now? I saw an amazing picture of it, of all places, on a TV show. And I, I talked briefly about this at my community group. It's a show that's filmed in Australia. Yes, we can blame Al. Um, it's called Love on the Spectrum. And what it is, I've seen like the first season a while ago. I saw it popped up, so I watched it. Um, and it tracks people that are on various stages of the autism spectrum, and they're looking for love. Now, at the last episode of the second season, there is a couple that have been together, and they are getting married. So the picture here is so cool. It's so cool. The bride was getting ready. And as she's getting ready, though, she's calling out for the groom. I mean, you could say what you all go, she's got spectrum, whatever. She knew what she wanted. She wanted her groom. What a great picture. In fact, the parents were doing everything a traditional couple would do. They had her in a horseless carriage. I mean, a carriage drawn, horseless, a horse-drawn carriage, and, and she's going to the, the front. She's standing in it, calling out for her groom. The groom, in front of the entire audience, can't stand him. Can't stand it. He's so nervous. He's crouching. He's standing. He's pacing. He wants to know where his bride is. Incredible. When they finally met, she was over it. She just wanted to kiss. 
so cool. And probably like about now. My wife looked over and said, are you crying? <laughs> and I went, I usually lie. I go like, no. But I said I was, because what a great picture this is. What a great picture of how it is to be with us. That we need to be like that. Every day, it's like, where's Jesus? So imagine your life if you had this depth of love developed over a steady course of time because you've learned about him. You know how good he is and you can't believe what he's done for you in your life, that you are called. Did you deserve it? No, you did not deserve it. We were chosen by him to live with him forever. By remembering this, using that mind and that memory, that we get to spend forever with him should make you want to dig into your word, gain more knowledge of this God we love. It's amazing, because going through the book of Daniel, you see that. You see a man that could say, you know what, my life was ruined. I was, I was doing well, and I was marched into another land. I was made a eunuch. Nothing's going right. But this guy did everything right. He knew God. He knew him, even to the point where he disobeyed, you know, praising another king as God. He was respectful. He did what the king said, except when it crossed the line and took worship away from God. He would not do it. So that's how we need to be. Could you imagine waking up in the morning and calling on him, just calling on him, much like that bride did. And you know, we plan a lot of things in our life. We do. We plan a lot of things. Now, if, imagine if you planned and focused every day to start meeting with God, to having that time of word and prayer. I know with me personally, if I don't, it gets away. It gets away quick. I'll have every great intention. I'll pack pack everything I need with me and try and do it at lunchtime. Sometimes I can, sometimes I won't. But I want to tell you, doing it is because God is worth it. And get on board because creation is waiting to praise him and have you right there singing with him. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we just can't thank you enough. When we stop, when we focus on what will be eternity and realize that we'll be standing next to creation praising you forever. What a gift. Help us to, to look back and focus on ourselves, all of us, and see where we are strong, where we are weak, and where we need to improve so we just know you. So we know you and it reflects in our lives that we can't stop talking about you. What an awesome time that will be. Amen.